<clears throat> Push again. Okay, there we go. Okay. Well, I, as you're discovering, Ephesians is such a treasure trove for believers. It's been such a rich study. And in chapter 1, Paul has detailed for us how God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He told us how Jesus brought us out of slavery from sin with his blood and how the Holy Spirit seals us and he guarantees our salvation and our inheritance. In chapter 2, Paul went on to teach that we were all dead, dead as doornails in our sins, but God made us alive in Christ. And he reminded us that by grace we're saved through faith. And even the faith we have to believe is a gift from God. He goes on to remind us that Jews and Gentiles come to faith the same way and, he, and uh, with the same exact result. It's God's work and the two groups are now one. And the amazing truth is that those who were far off, the Gentiles, that would be most of us, have been brought near and we're now fellow citizens with other believers and we're actually members of God's household. Now this would have been equally shocking to the Jews who'd always been God's special people and to the Gentiles who were always on the outside looking in. Their entire lives and histories had been at odds with each other for thousands of years. And then in chapter 3, Paul reveals that this has been God's plan all along. It was kind of surprising to the people involved, but God was not one bit surprised. And he calls it a mystery, meaning that it's something that man can know only if it's revealed by God, because man in his sin cannot understand spiritual truth unless God reveals it to him or enlightens him. So Paul has showered them with glorious doctrine, revealing truth upon truth, grace upon grace, and it's all driving home the heart of the gospel. Well, in chapter 4, as you noticed in your lesson this week, we turned a corner, and Paul teaches these Gentile believers who had lived very different lives than those Jews who were brought up in religious homes the application of this truth. What you believe should absolutely impact the way you live. And where chapters 1 through 3 kind of give us the bird's eye view of how God sees us in Christ from the heavenly realm, chapters 4 through 6 tell us how men should see us who are, those of us who are believers and see Christ in us here on earth. So here we go. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Therefore is always a key word, and it is here too. Paul's reminding us to think back on all he's taught us because it applies to what he's going to say next. Paul tells us that he's a prisoner of the Lord, not of Rome, not of the evil Jewish leaders, but of the Lord. And he understood the sovereignty of God, and he fully trusted that God knew exactly what he was doing when Paul ended up in prison. And before he tells them how to walk worthy, he's simply reminding them that there's a cost to do so. He implores or begs them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Well, why does he beg them? Because he understands the consequences of not walking worthy, and so do we when we think about it. Is there a more miserable, per miserable person on the earth than a Christian who is not walking in obedience to God? There is not. You're laughing, I know. You are the most miserable in your life when you're not obedient to God. Is God glorified in the life of a rebellious Christian? Never. 
So Paul doesn't want the doctrine he's just taught them to be mere words or theories, but he wants it to be life-changing so that everyone can see what real Christians are like. So he begs them to walk worthy, and he uses this word worthy in other letters. In Philippians, he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In Colossians, he says, that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. In Thessalonians, he says, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So we get a word picture from the Greek word worthy, and it's that of a scale of things being imbalanced. It's one thing having the weight or value of another thing. Something is worth as much as something else. It's the picture of a scale. Well, what is it that he's exhorting us to balance? It's our walk and our calling. So how we live and what we profess ought to be in balance with each other. So in other words, what comes out of our mouth and how we live ought to be on par with each other. So the first instruction he gives them is in verse 3, be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Well, why does he mention unity first of all? Well, think back to the first three chapters. He has taught that the primary objective which God had in mind before the foundation of the world was unity. Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 10. He made, us, he made known to us the mystery of his will, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. God's plan, which has now been revealed, is the unity of the Jew and Gentile in Christ. This is God's grand design, and this is what displays God's glory above everything else. So the peculiar mark of the Christian calling is that it preserves the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And this is the first thing that we need to remember as we strive to walk worthy. This unity has been produced and created by the Holy Spirit himself. Paul doesn't ask us to create unity, but he asks us to be careful not to break the unity that's already there. And this can only be experienced by those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells and those whom he has enlightened. So you know how it is when, when the Holy Spirit is in another person and he's in you, they're at once you're just conscious of that bond. You can meet a believer on an airplane and know that they're a true believer and there is something that connects. And that is that bond of unity that he's talking about. It's so important that Jesus prayed at a very hard time in his life. Remember in John 17, he prayed, I pray that they, all of us, may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. So the unity of the church displays the glory of God to the rest of the world like nothing else. And Paul tells us how we preserve the unity of the Spirit in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Well, these are all Christian-sounding words that we can really rush right past without understanding what Paul's even saying. And he emphasizes what the inner attitudes and graces are that lead to unity. So the first thing was humility, which is considered the foremost of Christian virtues. And it really just means lowliness of mind, or esteeming yourself as small, because you are small, because that is all predicated upon the deep realization of our sinfulness and our unworthiness to receive God's marvelous grace. Humility is the antithesis of pride. Pride urges man to trust in himself, believe in himself, 
And humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less often. Gentleness, another one of the things he mentions, is another inward grace of the soul. It's the ex- this is really good. This was the definition from the uh, Bible, di- the Greek dictionary. It's the acceptance of God's dealings with us, considering them as good, in that they enhance the closeness of our relationship with him. It's a quiet, willing submission to God with none of the rebellion, revenge, and retaliation that's characteristic of nonbelievers. Meekness does not blame God for the persecutions and evil doings of men. Meekness is not the result of weakness, but it's strength under control. And then we come to patience, which is the ability to show self-restraint by enduring troubles before proceeding to action. So it's the quality of a person who is able to avenge himself but refrains from doing so. So showing tolerance, again, is along the same lines. And it means to have patience with regard to the errors or weaknesses of others. You know, Peter told us that love covers a multitude of sins. So this does not mean that we accept heresy, but it does mean that we don't humiliate, ridicule, or mock those people who disagree with us. And what Paul is saying is when we manifest all of these things, we preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So after giving this brief instruction, he goes back to teaching about the doctrine of the church. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul says that there are seven elements that unite believers in the body of Christ. Well, why does he emphasize this oneness? And I think it's probably because they really lacked a true understanding of the nature of the church. You want to think back to the church at Corinth. You know, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians because there were divisions and sects and schisms and little groups in that church. And what he told them was that all of their troubles arose from their failure to understand the doctrine of the church properly. They thought of themselves as little individuals. And Paul is telling them here that they are one body. So James Montgomery Boyce said, comparing the church to a body is particularly appropriate in this passage because a body is something that works together, even though it's composed of many diverse parts. Moreover, its unity is organic. That is, it's achieved not by joining a number of diverse parts or pieces the way one would make a machine, but by growth, because the church is not a diesel engine or a watch or an airplane. It's a body. It grows by multiplication of cells. I think that's a good picture. And then another teacher said this, I thought was very good from the the big picture. The members of this body have been called out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. They differ. Think about this in nationality, color, language, education, training, ability, temperament, and outlook. Through human blood running in their veins, they have inherited dislikes, prejudices, animosities, and animosities that separate them as far as the East is from the West. But through the blood of the Savior and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they are united to Christ as living members of his body. And then you add the element of time and the church throughout all of time. It's a very diverse group. Well, just as there's one body, there's one spirit, which is the life of that body, and it dwells in all who are believers. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us, For by one spirit... We were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. 
So on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended to form the body of Christ. And the 120 individuals in the upper room, they were joined into one body through the Spirit's baptism. The first believers were all Jewish. They all had the same background. Uh, and so they certainly had unity because of, of the, that similarity. But as the church grew and Gentile believers were added, they came from vastly different cultural and spiritual histories. So Paul is emphasizing that the Holy Spirit works in the lives of the Gentile and Jewish believers exactly the same way. Great quote, quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, the first thing the Spirit does is to convict us of our sin. In doing so, he causes us to realize something of the truth concerning the holiness of God. These two things happen together. I am made to see myself, and I become aware of the fact that there is something within me that is vile and rotten and wrong, and I begin to realize that I do not know God, and there is a hatred of God in the depths of my heart. The Holy Spirit produces a unity in failure, a unity in sin, a unity in shame, a unity in utter helplessness and hopelessness. And it is because the members of the church are not convicted of sin that there is no unity. Our first great need is to be brought down, to be humbled and humiliated, and this is the first work of the Holy Spirit in us. It's really true. Paul continues, well, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. So our hope is not a plan, it's not a program, it's not even a person, it's, it's, it's not a promise, but it's ultimately a person, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think one of the most significant aspects of our hope is the absolute certainty we have that he is returning to take us home where we will spend eternity with him in complete perfection, free from sin and shame and sadness. And so our Lord promised his disciples, I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Our hope is that someday we will be home home with the one who loved us before the foundation of the world and that we will be like him, free from sin forever. And the better we know the hope of his calling, the more we're going to be motivated to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. Well, Paul continues in verse 5, one Lord. And Paul's point is there ought to be unity among believers because they all have one Lord. <coughs> Romans 10, 12 says, For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. There is no better way of promoting unity among Christians than by reminding ourselves that we all have the same Savior, because there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Well, Paul then tells us that we have one faith. Well, what does he mean by this? Certainly all who come to personally believe in Christ's atoning death on the cross have faith which is a subjective experience. But I think Paul here is referring to an objective body of truth uh, that's believed. So it's, I think what he's talking about here, one faith, is the essence of the gospel. It's what you have to believe. It's the great message concerning salvation that he detailed in the first chapter. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and man is made righteous by faith. And the very heart of the Christian message is that God has taken our sins and imputed them to Jesus Christ. He's put them on Christ's account. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, You realize you can lean on nothing in yourself 
that all your righteousness is but filthy rags, and that if you could live another thousand years and fast and sweat and pray, you would be no nearer to salvation than you are at this moment. And there is nothing in you that counts, that it is all in Christ through the Holy Spirit, and that you rely on that alone. If you believe, you're a Christian. If you do not believe it, you are not. That is, this is the one and only thing that is absolute essential, and therefore it is the one and only faith. Unity comes because there is only one way of salvation. Well, Paul then tells us that there's one baptism. And no doubt the mention of this term raises a question about how one baptism promotes unity because the whole issue of baptism is fraught with all kinds of differences of opinion and discord. You can be dunked, sprinkled, poured on, all different kinds of things. So how does baptism contribute to the unity of the Spirit? Well, we need to look at what it represents and signifies. And really, believer's baptism is simply the outward expression of an inner and unseen grace. It represents and signifies that we who are Christians no longer belong to the world and its realm and its interests, but that we now belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us who say that we're in Christ are proclaiming we've forsaken all else, that he alone is our Lord and Master, and that we're going to follow him. And baptism represents and signifies that we've done so. We used to go our own selfish way. When we're baptized, we are saying to the world that we're taking up the cross and following Jesus. And so that, would, that in that way contributes to unity. Well, verse 6 <clears throat> contains the seventh element that unifies all believers. There is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, if you think about it, the pagan world to which the Ephesians belonged, they believed in many gods, but none of the gods that they had previously worshipped was a father to them. When we become members of God's family because he chose to adopt us, God shows no partiality in his family, for he, he's the father of all, both Jew and Greek, and so the acknowledgement of this truth should again help aid family unity. Paul's not saying that God is the father of all men, but he is the father of all who believe in Christ. Verse 7, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So after emphasizing all the reasons believers have for, for preserving the unity of the Spirit, he then tells us that unity is not the same as uniformity. So our unity doesn't mean that we're identical in every single respect. In fact, our diversity is just as much a part of God's plan for the church as our unity is. So the question that we need to ask is, how can our unity be preserved in light of this diversity and variation? And so from verses 7 to 16, Paul shows how the church is characterized by both elements. And the controlling or the overriding principle is that the Lord Jesus himself is the head of the church, and he's the one who gives the variety of gifts that we enjoy in the church today. Every single person. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 and 5. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. Now, at this point, I think in the text, I, we certainly would have expected Paul to jump right into verse 11, where he then tells us what these gifts are, and he gave some as apostles and prophets, etc. But that's not what he does. He goes on this little side journey with Psalm 68. Did you not think that was a bit odd? It is, I thought it was quite strange. 
Um, and he, it says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Well, why does he do this? And I, I think it's because he wants to emphasize that it's Christ's exaltation to the right hand of his father that makes it possible for him to give gifts to men. And in Paul's mind, Psalm 68 was the perfect illustration of this. It wasn't the perfect illustration in my mind because I found it confusing at first, but for Paul, that was the best way he knew to illustrate it. So John MacArthur says that Psalm 68 is a victory hymn composed by David to celebrate God's conquest of the Jebusite city and the triumphant ascent of God, which would be represented by the Ark of the Covenant up Mount Zion. After a king won such a victory, he would bring home the spoils and the enemy prisoners, and he would parade all those people and all these things before his people. An Israelite king would take his retinue through the holy city of Jerusalem and up Mount Zion. But another feature, and this was something I learned that was new, of this victory parade would be the display of the king's own soldiers who had been freed after being held prisoner by the enemy. They were often referred to as recaptured captives, prisoners who had been taken prisoner again, so to speak, by their own king and given freedom. So in his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus Christ conquered Satan, sin, and death, and by that great victory, he led captive a host of captives who were once prisoners of the enemy, but now are returned to the God, and they're with the people with whom they belong. But that was excellent. Well, then Paul uses verses 9 and 10 to make the point that Jesus is the one who ascended on high and gave gifts to men. Verse 9, now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself, also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. Well, that was a bit wordy. But he said, Paul, I think basically just what Paul is saying, if there's an ascent, if something goes up, it had to have come down first. There had to be a prior descent, and the only one who descent that the God had made was when Jesus of Nazareth was born. So there's there's no other conceivable explanation. So I think what Paul's interested in here is that the acts of Yahweh, which were dimly foreshadowed in Psalm 68, were accomplished in Jesus Christ. He sees this as a fulfillment. Jesus is the one who came down. He's the one who went back up to be exalted far above all the heavens. He alone is in the position to distribute gifts to the church. And John 3.13 says this, And no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, namely the Son of Man. So I think that's why we have this interlude with Psalm 68. So he interprets that as to reveal the giving of gifts from the victorious Christ to his church. The triumphant Lord ascending to his throne in glory would be expected to dole out property or wealth to his people as a reward for their loyal service. That's not what happens in this case because verse 11 tells us that the gifts that Christ gives are gifted men who are to help equip the church to ward off attacks of deceitful scheming teachers. So the gifts that he gives are teachers that help us. Verse 11, here we go. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists, 
some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And the first men he mentions are apostles. The Greek word means one sent forth from another. This is a very specific and unique title for the 13 men whom Christ personally chose and commissioned. The original 12 would have included Judas, who betrayed Jesus and hung himself. He was replaced by Matthias uh, in Acts 1. The 13th man, of course, was the Apostle Paul, whom Christ personally chose and commissioned. And there are three vital characteristics of an apostle. The first and foremost was that this man had to have been a witness of the resurrected Christ. So obviously the, uh, the remaining 11 and Matthias had seen Jesus. We know Paul was confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus. So when an apostle died, he was not replaced. And so that's why there are no apostles today, because there's no one alive that has seen the risen Christ. The second characteristic is that they were given a direct revelation of God's truth. This included theology and doctrine. Paul's already emphasized this in, uh, the, in chapter 3. He says, when re- by referring to this, you, when you read, you understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, but it's now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. He says the same thing in the first part of Galatians. I'd have you know, brethren, the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from men nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So God revealed truth to the apostles, and he guided and inspired them as they wrote it down. And then the third characteristic of an apostle was that he had the power to work miracles. Healing people, casting out demons, all verified their teaching authority. Um, 2 Corinthians 12.12 says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So that gives you the overview of the apostles. Again, they've passed from the scene. The next thing he mentions are are prophets. So we think of Old Testament men like Daniel, Zechariah, Isaiah. They spoke under the divine influence and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And they foretold future events, but they also exhorted, reproved, and admonished the people. Um, Their teaching was a foretelling of the Messiah. It was looking forward to when Messiah would come. In the New Testament, what the prophets did was illuminate the salvation that Jesus accomplished and uh, what the implications of that salvation are. So we have men like Mark and Luke and James and Jude who've all contributed to the New Testament and were not apostles, but they were prophets. So we don't have prophets and apostles in the church today. Why? Because they have fulfilled the mission God called them to. That was to lay the foundation of the church and to prepare it for the time when apostles and prophets would pass from the scene. The Lord gave these men the necessary doctrinal revelation for the church. Initially, this was passed around verbally, passed on verbally, and then it was finally written down as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the New Testament is the foundation on which the church stands. Jude said to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So what we have is a completed and final revelation. So when someone comes along and says they have a new revelation from God, what do you do? Well, you get your running shoes on, and you run away as fast as you can. 
You call to mind what Paul said, what he wrote to the Galatians. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we've preached to you, he's to be accursed. The gold standard is the word of God. Everything is to be measured by that. And if it doesn't line up with God's word, it's false teaching. And that is the foundation on which we stand. Well, then Paul goes on to mention evangelists. And, I mean, there's one thing that comes to mind in our generation in America when we think of evangelists, and that's Billy Graham in a great big football stadium filled with people. So evangelists are people who have the special gift of communicating the gospel to those who are not yet Christians. In Paul's day, these men would have been itinerant missionaries who went from little village to little town and preached the gospel wherever they went. Today, I think it would be fair to call these people church planters. That would be that kind of a role. And finally, Paul tells us that the church has been gifted with pastor teachers, and pastors are shepherds who care for, protect, they provide leadership for their flock. And I think being a teacher describes what their primary function is of nourishing, strengthening those in their care by teaching them the word of God. So why has God provided these men to the church? Um, Verse 12 uh, and 13, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Well, that's a lot of words again. Paul in those run-on sentences. What is he saying? He says, these gifted men are given to equip the saints, the members of the body. And the word, the Greek word for equip means to set a bone or to mend, a fisherman mending his nets or to make somebody adequate. So by teaching God's word, The saints, believers, are equipped to minister. And the result of that ministry is that we grow and mature spiritually and the entire body is built up. So the point is we all have a point to play. We're all responsible to grow, mature, and participate in the life of the body or of the church. Every one of us is needed because every one of us has been placed in the body by the Holy Spirit and every one of us has been given spiritual gifts that the body needs to function the way God designed it. He finishes up by saying, as a result, we are no longer to be children, and that word is toddlers, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So I think his point is that spiritually immature believers who are not grounded in the knowledge of Christ through God's word are inclined to accept anything that comes floating their way. There's a lot of beguiling doctrine. There's fallacious interpretation of scripture that's promulgated by deceitful false teachers everywhere. And New believers and older believers, we all need to learn discernment. And Paul paints the danger of this, uh, of continuing as just a baby in your faith by comparing it to a ship that's rudderless and being tossed about by waves and wind. And all you have to do is look on Facebook or the news and you see what wind and waves do to people. It shipwrecks them. So he is telling us to grow up in all aspects. And we do this by speaking the truth in love. 
Um, we do this uh, based on the word of God. This is walking in a manner. This is what walking in a manner worthy of our calling is. It's when our doctrine and our lives are in balance. And when we grow up, when we mature, the entire body works as it was intended to. And the whole body is built up in love. So application, very quickly. I think the question we can all ask ourselves is, are you walking worthy in the Lord? Do your life and doctrine match up? Are there areas you need to confess sin? Are you harboring any grudges? Do you need help with somebody holding you accountable? Next, are you aware of your spiritual gifts? Do you know what they are, and are you using them? And the third thing is, what are you doing to help yourself grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, and what are you doing to help others grow in their knowledge as well? So some good, good food for thought, ladies, and I uh, hope it challenges you. Let's close in prayer. Father, your word is a light and to our feet. It's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And Boy, we thank you for it, and I I pray that you would challenge each one of us to think hard and deep and look at our lives and see if we are walking worthy. And Lord, I pray that we would be knit together in unity. I pray we would help each other as sisters walk worthy. Lord, that you would be glorified, and those who don't know you would look at our lives and our friendships and and how we help and encourage each other and, and marvel at your glory because of it. In Jesus' name, amen.